Welcome to the Vineyard Altoona podcast. If you have any questions or just want more information, you can visit our website at vineyardaltuna.org or any of our social media platforms at Vineyard Altoona. And now, here's Evan with the message. First semester, freshman year. My first class in college at Waynesburg University was Western Civilization to 1500 at 8 a.m. in Buell Hall. I was homeschooled growing up. Any other homeschoolers? Yeah. I was homeschooled growing up, so I didn't really have like an authentic first day of class experience, so this was like first ever. And I sat there quietly because freshmen don't really talk on the first day of class. And honestly, no one talks much at 8 a.m. on a Monday morning. So I had arrived early, and outside students were making their way through the halls to their classes, and, and soon things fell quiet, and we all sat there waiting. At 8.04 a.m., I heard whistling from down the hall, and in walked Dr. Tom Pavick, an older gentleman wearing a short-sleeved dress shirt, carrying a tattered manila folder, and he handed out the syllabus. He talked us through the three tests that would determine our grade for the class, and I'd heard about Silly Week, as it was called, when uh, the professors would simply, you know, tell you what was going on and then say, all right, we'll see you next week. So homework and classes were supposed to be pretty light that week. However, instead of calling it, Dr. Pavick turned around and said, so, the Fertile Crescent. <laughs> and he launched right into a lecture about the beginnings of Western civilization. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for the rest of the semester, the same thing would happen. Dr. Pavick would walk down to class whistling almost always a few minutes late. Sometimes he would open his folder of papers and look over his notes. But most days he would just pick up a piece of chalk and start lecturing on early Mesopotamian farming practices or the Egyptian ceremonial worship of cats. It was a wild class, and I was stunned every day. There was so much information, and I would write furiously, trying to keep up. But it was like drinking from a fire hose, and I struggled to keep my notes organized. A few weeks later, Dr. Pavick handed back my first exam with a big, fat F. I don't get Fs. So I studied harder. I took more notes, but it was no use. I only brought my grade up to a D on the second exam. There was simply too much information, and I couldn't seem to make sense of everything that I was taking in. Isn't the Bible like that sometimes? Yeah. Sure, there are some things that are pretty clear, but let's face it, the Bible is a daunting book, full of names we don't know how to pronounce, places we've never heard of and also don't know how to pronounce, and stories that make zero sense, 
full of people and places whose names we still haven't figured out how to pronounce. On top of that, it seems like everyone has a differing opinion of what the Bible actually says. Two people can read the exact same thing and come up with two completely different meanings. The whole thing is quite exhausting, and it's easy to see why many people give up on the Bible as incoherent, ambiguous, or incomprehensible. So the question is raised, how can we know what the Bible actually says? I'll admit it's a tough question, but I've come to believe that the truth of Scripture is attainable, and today I'd like to unpack for you how to go about doing so. But first, uh, an important distinction. Knowing what the Bible says is different from whether or not you believe the Bible is true. Derek covered some of this in his message a few weeks ago, which you can go back and listen to on the podcast if you missed it. But what it really comes down to is that we cannot be 100% sure. Just like the existence of God, there is no slam dunk moment where we discover that the Bible is in fact the inspired word of God. We choose what to put our faith in. I do, however, think there are a few things we can look at to determine whether or not the Bible is actually worth studying in the first place. The first would be historical evidence. Now, let me be the first to admit that I am no expert on the historical evidence for the validity of Scripture. You can simply reference my grades from Western Civ. But what I am confident of, or excuse me, what I am is confident that there are those who can discuss at length historical evidences for Scripture. And if you look for them, you will find them. I would reference any of Lee Strobel's books. And also, there's a fantastic episode in the Alpha course that I would recommend. Um, If you've done Alpha, or if you're doing Alpha, or you're thinking about doing Alpha, um, that would be a good place to go. All of that, however, is not the thrust of this message. Okay? The second reason why I think the Bible is worth examining, and the one that I would point to, is the accuracy with which the scriptures address the world and the human conditions. Think of it this way. If you had two instruction manuals without identifying titles, and you were trying to figure out which one was for whatever model of appliance or tool you were working with, you could simply start to flip through it, and figure out which one better assists you in using that thing in a meaningful way. If you're trying to use a chainsaw, and the first page of the manual tells you to gently slide it across your leg, then you can likely set that one aside. However, the more you dig, if the more you dig into the manual, the better you seem to be at understanding that thing, then you're likely on the right path. I believe the same thing to be true of Scripture. I would contend that the more you dig into Scripture, the more it will make sense in light of reality and vice versa. Now, you may not find those reasons very convincing, and and trust me, I'm right there with you. They weren't the best, you know. 
In an ideal world, we would spend hours on the evidences for God and the validity of Scripture, but that is simply outside the scope of this message. And again, I would invite you into further discussion with myself or Derek or Jerry or whoever. So while we can't be sure 100% that the Bible is true, we step out on faith knowing that there is plenty of evidence pointing us towards the existence of God and the reliability of Scripture. And again, much of this was covered in Derek's message a couple of weeks ago. So in essence, we've decided to go ahead and read our Bibles. And now we have to figure out what to do with what we're reading. So for the rest of our time together, I'd like to give you a few, a few practical tools to better understand Scripture. Show you how you can use some of those tools to better understand any given passage. And I'll close with a story about why I think this is worth all of our time and effort. Sound good? Cool. So jumping back to my freshman year, I finally caved and went to Dr. Pavic for help. After hearing me spill all my frustrations about how I was struggling to actually learn anything in his class, he gave me what I believe might have been the single most helpful lesson of my entire collegiate career. He said that, when learning history, it's best to start at 30,000 feet and begin to build a framework. So instead of, right off the bat, trying to memorize all the details of how early nomads set up and broke down camp, it's best to start by knowing that from 3,000 to 500 BCE, Western civilization was centered around Mesopotamia Egypt and the Hebrews. Then slot in ancient Greece from 1200 to 200, followed by the Roman Empire from 753 to 476 BC. Once you have an overall framework of headings, you continue to break down each time period into smaller subheadings. And finally, you add in details for each section. Before you know it, you'll have a working timeline of Western civilization and its major movements. Now, I didn't become a master in the history of Western civilization. In fact, I scraped out a C by the skin of my teeth. What I learned in that class, however, did help me understand Scripture as one whole story of God that can be broken down into movements and characters that are easier to remember. Kind of like when you pick out all the corner pieces and the edge pieces of a puzzle before you start to fill in the center. So let's build ourselves a frame, shall we? Scripture can be broken down into four main movements. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. This framework allows us to keep in mind the whole story of the Bible as we analyze particular passages of Scripture. Let me walk you through that story ever so briefly and touch on some of the main points in each section. Creation, the first. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world good and places humans as image bearers and rulers over his good creation. Scripture says that we were created in the image of God so that we could reflect the image of God in his creation. 
And we weren't created to sit around naked in a garden all day chomping on fruit. Genesis 1.28 says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and rule over it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Our purpose in life is to reflect the image of the God who created us. To be a creative, thoughtful, playful ruler over the creation. Our calling in the world is to work, to build stuff, to make stuff, to tend for the creation God placed us in. If we don't rightly understand this as the purpose of our existence, the rest of Scripture will make less sense. Then in Genesis 3, humanity betrays God, disobeying his command not to eat from the tree, uh, the fruit of the tree of good and evil. By doing so, all of our relationships were broken. Our relationship with God, with other human beings, with ourselves, and with the creation around us. All things are now broken because of humanity's disobedience. We were no longer able to bear the image of God as we were intended to. However, God isn't the giving up type. In his great mercy, God instantly made a plan to redeem his broken creation. Our fourth move, or excuse me, our third movement of redemption. Genesis 4 through the end of the Old Testament, and really the end of Genesis 3 through the Old Testament, is God working through humanity to repair the gap. And when every human avenue for salvation is exhausted, God sent his son Jesus to do that which we could not. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all tell of how he pays the price for sin, dying on the cross and making a way for our relationship with God to be restored. And with it, our relationships with all things. Which brings us to our fourth movement, restoration. Scattered throughout the scriptures and brought to a head in the book of Revelation is God's promise that one day he will return to make all things new again. He will banish all evil, repairing all that is broken. John says he sees in his vision a heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven as God makes his home here with us forever. By breaking the Bible down into these four headings or chapters, it's easier to grasp the whole of the story. Do you know how to eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Through this process, we're breaking down Scripture into bite-sized pieces so that over time we can actually begin to understand the whole. We can take these four headings and break them down even further in a number of ways. One way that's been helpful for me is understanding the main players of the Old Testament as the fathers, the priests, the judges, the kings, and the prophets. Becca's here. She knows this. She's been at 730 Bible study. Almost every book in the Old Testament can fit into one of these categories or the, or the characters. 
Check it out. David is a king. Abraham is a father. Isaiah is a prophet. And Deborah is a judge. That one's a little trickier, but we got it. Good, good. Yeah. So we're breaking down these scriptures to better understand them. And now that I've broken them down again, I can go even further. Like I said, for our our college Old Testament Bible study, I love to zone in on one of these categories and learn a little about each main player. This semester, we just started looking at the, uh, the judges who presided over Israel after they first entered the promised land. So instead of trying to fit together all the pieces of Scripture at once, we can take it in bite-sized pieces that are easier to understand and continue to grow in our understanding of the book as a whole. So now that we have a framework and begin, can begin to put things in order, we can begin to understand where any particular part of Scripture fits in a larger story, and we can zoom in and better understand the details of any given passage. In order to do that, we use a method called SOIA, S-O-I-A, which stands for Survey, Observation, Application, and Interpretation. If you're like me and you like visuals, I very much wanted to put this stuff up on the screen. Again, reference the fact that I'm a little bit of a mess this morning, but I have handouts. If you want to get up and go grab one right now, God bless you. I'm a visual learner. I need that sort of stuff. Survey, observation, application, and interpretation. This method allows us to examine a passage, asking questions of the text, and discovering the intended message of the author. Let's walk through each of these steps. We start with survey, during which we zoom out and examine the context of the passage. Here we can apply our framework, finding the place where the passage fits within the larger story. Just as we did a minute ago, we can know that David is in the kings, and Abraham is one of the fathers, and you know, so on and so forth. Um, then we'll continue looking at the general context of the passage. Is it focused on any particular group of people? What kind of writing is it? Is it prose? Is it prophecy? Is it poetry? You know the Bible has poetry? Good stuff. Take some time to read the surrounding chapters. So many misinterpretations of Scripture can be avoided if we'd only take the time to read the chapter just before or just after the one that we're studying. At the root of this step is discovering the context of whatever passage we're reading. This is often one of the hardest or most time-consuming parts of the process. But it is so very vital. We must have context to understand meaning. For example, suppose I told you that I played this game with some friends where we build forts, collect toys and pizza, and we stick it in our backpacks. And then we recruit kids from other people's backyards into ours. You might be concerned about my mental health and rightly concerned about the kids in my neighborhood. But if I told you 
It's a board game. Ah. And we're playing as kids. It starts to make a little more sense. You might still be uncomfortable with it. You might think it sounds dumb. But at least you have a truer understanding of what I'm trying to communicate. That's context. I have a phrase I use with my students. Jesus is king, context is key. We have to have context to understand a passage. Here's a biblical example. Many people have deep problems with the Old Testament passages where God tells his people to wipe out entire tribes from the face of the planet, and rightly so. To read these passages without the proper context is to understand God as a genocidal, genocidal dictator. However, if we study these passages, we'll see that these tribes were themselves merciless, evil people, committing child sacrifices on a regular basis. Then if we apply our framework, understanding that the whole world belongs to God, and it is humans that betrayed him, then we can see God in the light of being a loving and just God, seeking to rid his world of evil and restore it to its original state of goodness and peace. At that point, you may still disagree with God, and you're allowed to do that. But at least you'll have a better perspective on who God is and what his character is. Once you have some context and background for the passage, you can move on to observation. During this step, we spend time exploring the passage, asking lots of questions and noting things that stick out to us. Have you ever thought you knew something, but it turns out to be completely different from what you thought? One great example of this is the Star Wars quote. What does Darth Vader say to Luke after he chops off his arm? There it is. See, many of us, we think it's Luke, I am your father. But in reality, the quote is, no, I am your father. For some of you, that example meant nothing. Some of you are now questioning everything you've ever known. You're like, what? I've had it wrong my entire life. The point is, we often remember things incorrectly. And it turns out we do the same thing with Scripture. Often, we just make stuff up that isn't even in there. Do you know the, the verse, God helps those that help themselves? No, you don't, because it's not a verse in the Bible. It's a phrase that often gets attributed to the Bible, but it's not real. Neither is cleanliness is next to godliness. That idea might be in there, and I'm a fan of it, but it's not in the Bible. That phrase isn't in there. One that is just slightly off is money is the root of all evil, which actually in the scriptures, is that money is the root of all 
kinds of evil. So, in this step, as we observe a passage, we read it slowly, two or three times even. Students look at me weird, but I'm like, okay, let's read it again. They're like, we read it already. Yeah, let's read it again. Chew on it like a good piece of meat or whatever sort of vegetable you like to chew on. That's your thing. What does the passage actually say? What sticks out to you? What doesn't make sense? What words are you not familiar with? Be honest about the things that don't make sense to you. We don't have to lie. We don't have to cover up Scripture. If you don't understand it, admit it. If you don't like it, admit it. I do this all the time. I'll read a passage and I'll be like, well, I don't really like that. But that's what it says. I think many people are so afraid of not understanding Scripture or feeling like they have to cover it up that they never truly read it in the first place. I make my students sit in silence after we've read a passage because once they know I'm not just going to give them the answers, then they actually read the passage and they start asking and answering good questions. Ask the text questions. So much of studying scripture is just asking good questions of the text. Once you've spent time digging around a passage, you can then begin to interpret the intended meaning of that passage. What did the passage mean to the audience it was originally intended for? What issues were they struggling with? How does this passage address those issues? What does the passage say about God? What does it say about humans? This is what it means to find the interpretation of the text, is to find what the author originally meant for us to discover, or the people he was writing to. And you don't have to figure this out all on your own. This is a great place to take some time and check out other people's thoughts. Read two to three other interpretations of the passage and see if a theme arises. Maybe it's something you had in mind. Maybe it's totally different. Biblical commentaries are great tools for understanding the meaning of a passage. As long as you don't zoom in on one interpretation and take it as gospel and be done with it, it's good to read multiples. As you begin, uh, let, me, let me pause here for a minute and say that, that if you're not familiar with these resources, that's what we're here for. Derek has an office full of books, tons of them, and he lends them out. I don't know if he does that or not. You can talk to him. <laughs> I make promises for Derek up here all the time. <laughs> I don't think he's cool with it, but, you know, we're friends. <sighs> Talk to Derek. Derek's really great at this, at finding resources that, I, I promise you, every passage, every, almost every sermon he preaches, he reads like two to three books on the topic just so he can know exactly what he's talking about. If you're looking for resources to find an interpretation on something that you're wrestling with, go talk to Derek. He's a great one for this stuff. So as you begin to form an understanding of what the original meaning of the text is, only then 
should you start to translate how that message applies to your life now. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because this is generally the one that people are best at. They'll read a passage, make a meaning, and then they'll start applying it to their life. But they miss the mark because they haven't done the prior work to get at the heart of the passage. I have a friend uh, who once said, the Bible isn't about you. The Bible isn't about you. But it is for you. The Bible isn't about you. But it is for you. God wants to speak to us through his word. And sometimes he will do that very directly. I don't want to put a box on God. But let's not be naive or lazy. God gave us brains. Let's use them. And let's give the Bible some respect. Years ago, I started practicing just sitting quietly and listening to the elders in my life. Rather than doing all the talking. And it's not something I always do, but when I can. I found that if I sat and I listened, and I would ask questions. I would learn valuable lessons that I could apply to my life. We must take the same approach with Scripture, sitting and listening to what it has to say before going off half-cocked. So there you have it. Survey, observation, interpretation, application. A tested method to unpack Scripture in order to get to the heart of what it actually says. And again, if you're like, wow, that was a lot. It was like drinking from a fire hose. Handout, okay? It's got, uh, it's got the framework on there, and it's got soya, it's got the steps, and some notes on the back of things to keep in mind as you continue to study Scripture. So, now I don't want to be here all day, but let me briefly show you this in action. Let's look at the passage from Derek's message from last week. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 1 Timothy 2.12. Now, if we take this verse at face value, we're led to believe that women should be subservient to men. However, when we survey the context, we see a trajectory in Scripture that points in the other direction. If Adam and Eve were created as co-rulers in the garden, and we're on our way to that restored kingdom, it makes sense that God is restoring that relationship. The whole of Scripture helps us understand a particular passage. By reading the whole book and doing some historical research, the whole book of Timothy, that is, and doing some historical research, we can discover issues particular to the people of that time and place that Paul is addressing. Which leads us to interpret the whole passage as a call for mutual submission to one another out of love for Christ. And we can apply this interpretation by empowering humble and kind leaders who know how to submit in love to Christ and to others. And again, if, if this raises more questions in that example, you can listen to Derek's podcast to further understand that message, or that passage. 
How about, let's do another one. How about Jeremiah 29, 11? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. This is, this is one of my favorites. And I'm sorry if I'm about to ruin it for you, if this is like your life verse. Sorry. As a, a campus minister, I wish I had a dime for every time I saw this verse on an encouragement card. Um, I would have a lot of dimes. A lot of dimes. <laughs> At its core, it is encouraging. It is an encouragement from the Lord. But if you read the whole chapter, you will observe that this verse is written as part of a letter to people in exile. And we give this to college students. We're like, you're in exile. Here you go. (laughs) It's an encouragement in the face of suffering. College students are like, yeah, I know. If we take the time to discover where this story fits inside of our framework, we know that God's chosen people, whom he'd set up as a nation in the promised land, had turned away from him and begun worshiping other gods. So God gives them up to the gods they'd been worshiping, and they get dragged off into exile. But just as he has through all of Scripture, God remains faithful. He declares, I know the plans that I have for you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. As we study the context of the verse, we discover that this isn't a carte blanche promise of health and wealth, but rather a call to faithfulness because of the goodness and faithfulness of Creator God. And if I apply this to my life, I can rest in whatever situation I'm in, good or bad, trusting that God's plans for those who follow him are good. Again, if we take the time to faithfully unpack a passage, we see the whole story and we come to a right understanding of its intended meaning. By following this pattern and taking time to unpack the scriptures well, I believe that you can come to an understanding, you can come to understand what the scriptures say and their intended message. Now the fact remains that faithful Christians still interpret passages of scripture in completely contradictory ways. And I get it, that's super frustrating when two Christians are saying two completely different things. And it it makes us want to quit, to stop trying to understand. Well, I want to tell you a brief story, and that's where this guy comes in. I know y'all have been staring at it wondering what it is. Well, so you know I work with college students, and, and last, last week, the week before, the week before I did an outreach on campus. I'm not great at outreaches all the time. I'm like awkward, and I don't know what to say to students, and it just gets kind of weird. So I'm trying a new method. I was like, you know, I'm going to take these brain teasers that I've kind of gotten into over Christmas, and I'm going to take them with me to campus and just invite students to try them. And maybe I'll be able to talk to them about the brain teaser and it'll develop. It worked. It worked really well. I had an involvement fair in the morning and I met all these students and we had some good conversations. Like, that's awesome. And I wanted to do more. I was going to be in the cafeteria that night and so I drove to Barnes & Noble to get more of these things because I wanted some new ones, some cool ones. And I bought this guy. 
This is called the sword in the stone. Has anybody seen this before? Anybody played with one of these before? Okay, not really. That's cool. Um, So it's a brain teaser, and it acts like a key in a safe where you twist the sword and try to get it out of the stone. And there's like little locks, I don't know if you can see them, where it it, it like pulls out of there. And so you you go back and forth trying to to pull it out of the stone. So I head onto campus, and I've got my table set up, and I'm super excited, and I've got all my brain teasers laid out, and students start coming, and I start talking to them. And they start trying the different brain teasers that I have. And I'm super excited to be like, yo, check this one out. It's super cool. Look how beautiful it is. It's such a nice one. And, and I hand it to a girl, and she starts fiddling with it. And she finally solves it, and she's super excited. And I'm like, okay, now you got to put it back in. So, you know, and it's great. Suddenly more and more students come to the table. There's like five, six, seven. They just keep coming. And I'm starting to get a little overwhelmed. I'm like, oh, there's a lot of people here. Again, refer to the fact that I'm a little awkward and I get overwhelmed when talking to new people, but we figured it out. You know, I'm like, okay. Kelly was there. I don't know if Kelly's still here, but she was there and she was helping me with this stuff and it was cool. But things started to get so busy that people just started handing brain teasers around. Okay, I was like looking at a person and going, what do I think you're going to, uh, let me give you this one. But they just started handing them around and just like passing them around. So this one dude comes up to the table. I didn't even really notice that he'd come up. He just came up with some friends and he was standing there. And he seemed like kind of a cocky, you know, boisterous, young college guy that was like, you know, pretty full of himself. I don't know that that's an assumption about him. But But so somebody handed him this. And I don't think they explained to him what you were supposed to do. And I think what he did was he thought, I just have to yank this thing out of there. And by the time I looked over, he was doing this. And I was like, oh, no. And what happened was that, oh, now it's not going to, oh, he broke it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Somebody felt my pain. This brand new puzzle that I had just gotten, he just yanked a piece off and suddenly it was broken and it, it, didn't, it didn't do what it was supposed to do. And I was, I was frustrated and angry and sad and I can be honest about those feelings now. I love him as much as God will let me. I'm trying to forgive him, even though I don't really know him. But the fact remains that my little puzzle box is broken. I think I can get some super glue and put it back together and and we'll be okay. Just like that student, we can approach Scripture and we can impose our will upon it, making it say what we want it to say, And lots of people do this. But that only results in brokenness and pain. And real people get hurt. Or we can stubbornly insist that our idea of how to interpret Scripture is the only way. That we have it figured out and everyone else is wrong. But then we might miss out on valuable insights or deny historical evidence that sheds light on a passage. Or worse, we could be stuck going in the wrong direction and completely miss what God is trying to communicate to us. At the end of the day, we must humbly submit ourselves to God as we study the Bible. Not blindly, 
Not naively or lazy, but thoughtfully and diligently. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. You see, the Bible is unlike any other book you've ever read. It claims to be the revelation of God unto his people. And through it, he makes his character known. And he invites us into a story that is so much greater than any we could conjure up on our own. So rather than giving up when the Bible seems dense, or the truth of Scripture seems unknowable, I would challenge you to lean in. Keep digging. Stay humble as you continue on a quest for truth and seek out others who are farther along on the journey. As I close, I want to read to you Psalm 1, which says, Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. One of my favorite scholars translates that as whose delight is in the revelation of God. And who meditates on it day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water who bear their fruit in season and whose leaf never withers. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. This passage isn't a, a, a legalistic declaration of you better meditate on your Bible day and night or else. What it says is that the person who spends time seeking to understand the revelation of God in his creation, the person who diligently and humbly submits themselves to God's word, is going to find themselves in a position of being blessed. That they will have an insight into the creation and the way it functions in a way that other people just will not have. It is a statement of the status of a human being who delights, who meditates on the revelation of God. And it's a warning that that if you don't, you're not going to know how this thing works. And you will find yourself blown away. The promise of Scripture is that it is intended for our good. And that those who commit themselves to it will find life. Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.